Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not going to talk about COVID. We're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in Plenary Session, Real Life Edition, with Rahul Banerjee. Dr. Banerjee is a third-year hematology-oncology fellow. He actually, he's practically graduating. He's going to be a CAR-T fellow Technically, the time you hear this, I will have graduated to be a super fellow. Super That's fellow. That's the word I'm using for it. But exactly. we, didn't, we didn't commemorate you at the graduation ceremony. Is that next year? I, I, I feel like when, you know, you say bye to someone, but they keep walking with you for another block before they actually leave is very awkward. <laughs> the same thing applies here. I'm not actually leaving. Not much is changing. So I'm not going to graduate until next year where I, I can see. actually say bye and get an office. Well, it's a... It's a uh, that, that that makes sense. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for doing this. This is a plenary session mobile edition. Hopefully they don't throw us out of this room. They'll come and see us doing here. They'll think we're doing important work. But we have found a room in the hospital to sit down and chat. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. So I wonder, before we get started, I wonder if it might be helpful to listeners to tell tell them a little bit about who you are. You are a Hemonk fellow. You're interested in CAR-T myeloma which we're going to talk about, um, but you did your medical training at Brown University. You went on to do residency at Penn, mm-hmm. where you must have been exposed to CAR-T, whether you like it or not. That's, it, I'll tell you a story about that an hour later about CAR-T at Penn. Absolutely. <laughs> and then you, uh, you came here for fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, you've worked with a lot of people, but particularly Nina Shaw. Who's uh, also a, 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 former host, a former guest on this show as well. A former a, guest, amazing yes. Amazing mentor, amazing tweeter, amazing everything. Oh, that, yeah, she was terrific. Um, and I think people really liked her episode. Um, and, uh, and she takes Twitter with a grain of salt. <laughs> Very true. She, when she uses it, she uses it well. When she doesn't, she doesn't, which I like. Just able to walk away from social media, which I struggle with. Yeah, I, um, I, 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 uh, I've, I've gotten better over the last year by you just drop something and leave. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a C. Okay, so I wonder if you might tell listeners a little bit about what is your interest in oncology and uh, what do you hope to do and what are you going to do next year? Absolutely. So thanks again for having me. Excited to be here. I'm, uh, by the time that viewers hear this, I will have finished my Hemonk Fellowship and will be staying on as a BMT CAR-T Fellow at UCSF, working on both clinical and research projects, mainly in myeloma is what I'm clinically interested, also mm-hmm. a lymphoma. Uh, Dr. Babas Andriadis is my other mentor, also a CAR-T guru in his field. Um, Research-wise, I, I think I'm a little bit off the beaten path in that I think that I would shrivel up and leave medicine if I were forced to do phase one trial for the rest of my life. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, I'm more interested in advancing the frontiers of medicine from a more system standpoint. So I think I've always been interested in supportive care and survivorship and digital health. And so most of my research actually is in, in digital health. So apps to support patients undergoing CAR-T therapy, digital life coaching to support patients undergoing stem cell transplantation, just improving 
our ability to prevent information overload in our patients and improving our ability to just support our patients and help them rebuild their lives after the you know, terrifyingly intense chemotherapy, immunotherapy that they get to cure their cancers. That's really good. And that's quite novel. There are not a lot of people interested in this space. Yeah, I mean, I, I came into it actually. So between my residency at Penn and fellowship here, I actually did a chief residency in quality improvement and patient safety. So the VA offers actually here at San Francisco has one as well. And across the country, it's a, it's a cohort of chief residents, not always in medicine, are very interested in quality improvement. And the quality improvement, I think, has its own really unique uh, uh, capabilities to advance the field of medicine. And I'm, I think, unfortunately, QI, I came into fellowship thinking I wanted to do a lot of QI. Unfortunately, as you know, as the readers, as the listeners will know, a lot of times QI ends up being, did you complete the staging module correctly? Did you document this correctly? Did you document that <laughs> mm-hmm. correctly? And I would call that quality assurance, making sure that the notes are good. I'm more interested in quality improvement of healthcare processes. And that is not a, health, staging is not a healthcare process. Yeah. You know, helping our patients transfer from outside hospital to here. That's the healthcare process I'm interested in. Helping our patients, you know, get through the CAR-T therapy acute window, helping their caregivers get through that window. That's quality improvement of a process, and that's what I'm interested in. Yeah, uh, that's that's well put. I mean, I struggle with that sometimes because I get angry when I'm trying to do something and it keeps prompting me for this staging. Um, because I guess one of the reasons it's really irritating is that, uh, I mean, it's important that we collect national staging statistics. Mm-hmm. We don't mm-hmm. discount that. Um, but one of the reasons it's irritating is that the way you treat a cancer and the stage, sometimes they go hand in hand, but not always. Sometimes you lump a few stages together in a treatment algorithm, and it doesn't really matter precisely. Is it a two or three? They're going to get the same treatment. I completely, completely agree. And I, at, least, at least for us, you know, we actually made this one of our QI projects uh, my first year of fellowship to improve use of the staging module. And we realized one of the biggest issues is when they meet us for that first visit, we don't have all the information. The PET scan reportedly is fine. We don't have those reports. The blood work, we don't have, you know, the, for myeloma, which I'm interested in, the beta 2 microglobulin was never checked. Correct. So you're left getting dinged for not having staged a patient, but it's not your fault. It's not the patient's fault. It's just the system and time. And I think that's one of the issues with a, a very EMR-based approach to improving the quality of healthcare is that the EMR only reflects a fraction of what we're actually doing and how we're actually taking care of patients in real time. So beta-2 microglobin. So you like your ISS staging then? I, I do like my ISS staging. <laughs> I, I, it, it, I mean, I, I feel like now we, the cytogenetics seem to carry more weight in my mind. Uh-huh. Like beta-2 microglobin, if it's high, yeah. But if the RISS, if the, um, you know, the, the scary cytogenetics, I'm like, oh, I'm really kind of concerned. But technically, both factor equally into this algorithm for RISS staging. It's interesting. It's a, it's a lot of data to end up giving someone RVD. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I am familiar with your prior podcast and uh-huh. you've discussed this at length. Um, <laughs> you know, what, what's the value of sending fish? Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I will echo what the prior uh, discussants on uh-huh. your show had said. I, I will add that I, I think it does help with prognostication and I think it does help with clinical trials. We'll talk about clinical okay, trials later in this study. That's we don't point. have any in this period, but I think knowing that these patients are, their, their responses are not going to last as long, knowing that they have 1114, I think that is actionable and probably actionable for trials and standard of care. But I hope to see more precision medicine coming our way in myeloma. And I think we need the fish to be able to. By actionable, you mean PI and Revlimid maintenance? Um, well, well, venetoclax for T1114. Oh, um, well, and, and, oh, and that's the one that Venetoclax. I think. But, 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 but not frontline, you're talking about. Not, not lab, front, okay. well, well, yes and no. As of now, not frontline. Yes, I, okay. I would not recommend that to anybody. But I think uh, in plasma cell leukemia, for example, like T1114, 
I don't know. I, I think we can, you can throw the kitchen sink of chemotherapy at them, or maybe you can say, I, I don't know about this patient giving them, you know, VD pace or Dara KRD, something super aggressive, and maybe just some venetoclactic dex to see what happens. And we've had some patients who do really well with that. Mm, plasma cell leukemia, the final frontier. Okay. Uh, a scary frontier, but a final one. Agree. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll come back to that. Let's talk about what you're supposed to talk about today, which we got a new paper out. Mm-hmm. It's out, JAMA Network Open. And it's on CAR-T. It's on the landscape of CAR-T. So I wonder, what's the title of this paper? And if you might tell listeners about what, what the hell is this paper about? Absolutely. So the title of the um, paper is Characteristics of Registered Studies of CAR-T Therapies, a Systematic Review. Um, and it's a landscape analysis, exactly as you said. The, the, the rationale for this, a landscape analysis, in my mind, is just looking at all the trials out there and kind of identifying themes that come out of not... The standard of care, but of trials. You know what's coming in terms of where clinical trials are focused and and who they're focused on. And so a lot of groups have looked at the landscape of CAR T trials before. They've mainly focused on where they're from. You know China versus U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've mainly focused on you know solid versus heme malignancies, and that's all well and good. But I think our focus on it, it was interesting. We both came into this kind of overlapping. Uh, um, requests for data that we wanted to see mm-hmm. you were interested in seeing what percent of patients what percent of trials i'm sorry are randomized that's right that's RCTs, my, that was what i was hunting for that's exactly <laughs> right because i think it's especially given the price tag of these yes. therapies and given you know how intensive they are i think it behooves us to use rcts me given my interest as i mentioned in kind of supportive care the frontiers of yes. medicine i was saying well look it's it's really easy to launch phase one trials. Of, not, I shouldn't say really easy. Let me rephrase that. It is hard to launch phase one trials, but uh, conceptually, you can always launch a phase one trial of a new car product, well a new put. car construct, and whatever disease, or take your existing CAR T product and put it in some other disease. I was interested in what trials are actually looking at improving the efficacy of our existing CAR T therapies, you know, improving the safety profile of existing CAR T therapies, or improving supportive care with our existing CAR T therapies. But the idea being that instead of, you know, just focusing on the cutting edge of all these new products, what are we actually doing with all the products we already have? We have five approved products now in the U.S. What are we doing to make them safer for our patients, more efficacious for our patients, and more accessible for our patients? That's well put. Okay. And um, we'll talk about both these these categories. The first Mm -hmm. category, the randomized trials. When we started our paper, and when we finished the paper, and when we submitted the paper, and when the paper was accepted, we hadn't had any press release of randomized control trials to date of CAR T-cell therapies, but now we've had two, I think. We've had the BMS, and we've had, what was the other one, Kite? Um, kite, yeah, so yes, Carta, I, I, I'm sure you have your own opinions about uh-huh. science by press releases. I would like to see the data, obviously, sure. but I agreed. Um, I, I think they're, they are not, to be fair, they are not RCTs of the CAR-T products under currently approved indications. They are like press releases of trials of trying to move the CAR-T therapy either earlier or into a high-risk population up front. Um, agreed. Even then, so in December 2020, when we ran this analysis, I think if I out of 800 or so trials, only 10 were RCTs. I see. And which should be better in my mind. And all of them, as I mentioned, in most cases, were trying to meet pharma-sponsored trials to move the CAR-T therapy into earlier lines of setting, which I think is an appropriate way to do it. But we'll talk about some of the pitfalls of yeah. investigating CAR-T therapies in earlier lines of setting. But 10 out of 800 is a very, very small percentage of trials adhering to the gold standard of research, which is the RCT. Yeah, that's what <laughs> blew me away, which was that you know CAR-T, I think, it first crossed my radar 2010, 2011, 2012, 
you guys in Penn were doing some really good work. Carl June was doing it, and we had uh, Jim Kokendorfer at NIH. Mm-hmm. He was a solo man back then. I used to see Jim walking around the hospital uh, doing his CAR-T work, and we wondered, what the hell is Jim Kokendorfer doing? But he was up to something, apparently. Um, and I had known that since then that we have launched it in so many different things, and they're launching CAR-Ts, you know, of course, myeloma, of course. Uh, I mean, every liquid cancer has got a CAR-T going into it, or an NKT. Um, but... In addition, some solid cancers too, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so that had surprised me. We had so many different uh, investigations of CAR-T. We had a few approved products. It rose as we were doing our study, um, but we hadn't seen any randomized data in any setting. I'm talking about any line, any setting, anything. I guess medicine by press release, I always have mixed feelings because I think people who don't understand it think every press release is medicine by press release. But of course, I always point out the recovery trial that wasn't quite the same thing. They had published a protocol, a statistical plan, this is true. COVID is like I, I think I, I blame preprints and uh, and press release science on COVID. I feel like in a lot of ways. I, I'll ask you: Do you feel like this science that press release was a, as big of a thing before I mean, March twenty twenty? I would say in 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 our field of oncology, the companies have always been doing it. That's true. Um, in part because of uh, SEC requirements, like they don't want to have insider trading allegations, uh, so they want to disclose this to prevent or preclude that from happening. Um, but you know, COVID is just it's. It, I mean. I guess it will be it will be an important empirical question to ask: Did COVID result in a higher fraction of garbage science than usual? <laughs> but I suspect, Agreed. if I were betting, I suspect the fraction of garbage is the same. It's just that it's sped it up. Like you said, mm-hmm. twenty years of science in, in eighteen months. Agreed. But but um, but back to this. I mean, I, I think. I digress. Yeah. Yeah. Now these are two CAR T randomized control trials. Um, the BMS, my understanding is, it's CAR T versus auto in mm-hmm. relapsed DLBCL. The kite was a little bit more tight inclusion criteria. It was like you had to relapse within a year or something. And I think it was high risk. And I have to go back and look, yeah. but I suspect it was high risk patients only. Agree. And I think they, they were looking at event-free survival, which I, I, I think it's difficult because of patients who are going. I have my thoughts about this. I think people on Twitter have uh, expressed it more eloquently than I could for sure. But I, I think that... I would want to see the protocol, what they were actually planning yeah. to do. Yeah. Is EFS truly what they're going and how they defined EFS? But yeah. I think if you cherry pick your population, I'll talk about another uh, uh, randomized control trial of Siltus on myeloma in a second, if you'd like, that sure. I don't think is appropriate in my mind. But I, I think that if you cherry pick your population, you are, you're going to find that CAR T therapy will outdo anything, which is fine, but then the press release doesn't add all the caveats that, oh, yes. CAR T beat auto only in high risk patients, only in patients, whatever, yes. one year progression after right. our chop, blah, blah, blah. Which suggests People, that, yeah. Well, no, I mean, yes, like what you're getting at is if you cherry pick a tiny subset of relapsed DLPCL where you're truly chemo refractory, mm-hmm. well, of course, you're going to be chemo auto. But if you really ask the question, should everybody in relapsed DLBCL get auto, then CAR T for the ones that subsequently relapse, or CAR T and then auto for the ones that subsequently relapse, which is really the sort of clinical question we face, um, did your trial do all that? Agreed. And I guess so we're interested in two things. One, what is the specific inclusion criteria? Um, are you stacking the deck in favor of CAR-T by putting a lot of chemo-resistant disease? And two, among people who get auto second line, how many people get CAR-T third line? Or are you running this in some place in the world where they don't have access? Which I think I think crossover is something that I would love to actually pick your brain yeah. on. I, I feel like yeah, if you were to ask a med student what crossover meant, I don't know, what do you think they would say? Gosh, I think med students think of crossover like psychiatry literature. They think that... Um, 
you have some people, I mean, I think the way they teach it is like some people take an SSRI for six weeks, you see how many are depressed, then they take placebo for six weeks and you see how many are depressed versus vice the other order. But in oncology, we have like unidirectional crossover. I was going to say you're smarter than I was. When okay. I was a med student, I would think of crossover as uh, in like meiosis, the sex chromosome, <laughs> the, like, the DNA moving back and forth. That, I, I feel like that was the only crossover I feel like I ever understood until, you know, in residency and fellowship, I'm like, oh, crossover, great. But yeah. then, oh, crossover is not great. Oh, or maybe it's, maybe it's good in some cases, not good in some cases. I think here, my take on it, and again, I would love to hear you corroborate this or not, that I think for a commercially available CAR-2 product, for example, all of these products where they are available in third line for lymphoma or fourth line for myeloma, if you're trying to move it up, you need to have crossover right. as an option. Yeah, I mean, I think that when I started in the field, like crossover is a very muddy concept, mm -hmm. and people used it in a sort of unclear way. And then we wrote a paper many years ago where we tried to disambiguate just two uses. One, if you had a product that you've never brought on the market before, in those cases, crossover will confound OS. And it doesn't always confound it like uh, there was an OS benefit and advantage. Sometimes it confounds it like there was no OS benefit, and now you have a spurious OS benefit. And we wrote about that with um, Cipolucil T, which I could walk you through. I would love to actually hear that. Yeah. Okay, well, here's, the, here's the, the short of that. So let's say you have a product that you never existed. Let's just say the product is a pixie stick, okay? Pixie stick. Pixie stick, does it do anything for cancer? No. As far as we know. As far as we okay. know. Although I hear a lot of people talk about sugar, but, okay, but this is not going to do anything for cancer. Okay. Let's say you do a randomized control trial in uh, sort of low-volume, castrate-resistant uh, uh, metastatic prostate cancer, um, and you randomize people to pixie stick or placebo pixie stick. So it's a stick that I guess doesn't even have the, the nice tart taste of a Okay. If you have crossover in this study, um, the group that got the pixie stick up front, when they progress, they'll get, they can't cross over because they've already gotten it. So they'll get standard of care, which is docetaxel. If you give the placebo pixie stick, I guess this is some inert powder uh, that doesn't have that nice tang of a pixie stick. Of course. When they cross over, they cross over to pixie stick. Mm -hmm. When they progress, they cross over to pixie stick. And then when they progress a second time, they get docetaxel. Okay, so now what you've done is you have a trial where after one progression you get docetaxel and after two progressions you get docetaxel you have an imbalance in docetaxel and it turns out that in the pro in the provenge study this is literally the design so provenge very interestingly there's no response rate from cipolucil t there's no pfs difference but there is an os difference of four months but if you got cipolucil t first you had 57 percent get docetaxel with a median of 12 months and if you didn't it was like i forget the number 50 percent um it was like 10 percentage points lower, and it was a median of like two months longer. And so it's really a trial of early versus delayed docetaxel. That's brilliant. That's okay. a brilliant take on it. Yeah. Okay. So the same thing is true, I think, for a, a trial of vendetinib in medullary thyroid cancer. People can go pull, buck, pull up, and there's a really great JAM editorial, maybe about 10 years ago by Kurt Furberg uh, in uh, JAM about this, where you had a drug with a lot of QTC prolongation and a lot of problems but there was crossover and there's no OS benefit. And the authors say, well, it's because of crossover. But the other probability is that the drug has off-target toxicity that gets masked because everyone ends up on the drug. So those are, these are drugs that have never had a path to market. Now let's talk about the other scenario. The drug already has proven a benefit in subsequent lines of therapy. And we can take uh, Pembro head and neck cancer. Mm -hmm. You know, We had second line Pembro data maybe five years ago. Now we run Keynote 48, which is Pembro platinum versus extreme, so Cetux platinum uh, and 5-FU. And here, I think if you get Cetux platinum 5-FU, you ought to get Pembro second line because randomized control trial data already supported that choice. Agreed. But yet the rate of crossover was low, which biases in favor of the experimental arm, which is Pembro 
early versus never Pembro. Yeah. And never Pembro is not really a fair choice. Same thing in Avelumab, Javelin 100. Same thing in Keynote 177. Same thing in um, Pacific. Pacific is a disaster. The rate of uh, Prembro second line in Pacific for Devalumab is poor. Same for, I suspect the same will be for Adora. We'll, we shall see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so I, I guess the way, the first thing I dis- conceptually differ- differentiate is, are you taking a drug that you already have convinced yourself works and you're moving it up, in which case you want to mandate crossover? Or do you have a drug product that you had no idea if it has fundamental efficacy? And in that case, I think you don't want crossover. So that's how we kind of conceptualized it. That's a brilliant way of looking at things. Agreed. Such a long window. Uh, but I think it makes sense because it's very, very complicated. And I think, you know, uh, another guest of the show, Manny Moyudin, has, like, I yes. think, written about post protocol therapies. And I, I recall being surprised by how low the rates, even when the protocol didn't mandate that you yeah. couldn't get the, you know, the real standard of care at the time of progression, you know, a lot of these studies, patients in the control arm just weren't getting the active drug, even though it was commercially available when they progressed. And probably because they were too sick to get it at that point or they'd, you know, lost a follow-up. I'm not sure what it is, but that's concerning. Yeah. So back to the paper. So the first I, thing you looked at. Well, the one thing I will say, so yes. just an example of a, a, tr- a cherry-picking population. So I think um, CARTA-2-5 uh, is, is newly, so it wasn't included in our analysis because it wasn't posted on clinicaltrials.gov until even a month ago or so. And that's looking at, uh, if I recall correctly, VRD uh, to j- just like straight up VRD induction in multiple okay. myeloma. So more cycles. Exactly, yeah. right? If you're familiar with this versus VRD and then randomize and then go to Siltacell instead, um, Siltacell being the, the uh, J&J CAR-T product. But if I recall correctly, the trial is only in patients for whom transplant is not planned. Hmm. Interesting. And, and so you wonder what what patients do you have where you can't you know, do a transplant, where you're worried about transplant for them, and then but you are fine with CAR T for them because <laughs> I feel like between autologous stem yeah. cell transplant and CAR T, you know they have unique toxicities. But I think honestly, the biggest barrier to patients, I don't even think it's age. I think it's living in an academic, living near an academic medical center for a month where you can just hang out here, have a caregiver support to do so. Those logistical barriers are the same for CAR T and for transplant in my mind. Yes. So it's, it's kind of, I think, threading a very, very fine needle. Or Who's like, the transplant ineligible patient? Like, 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 like 13-gauge proline. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. Who's the transplant ineligible patient who's fit enough and close enough to get CAR-T. Uh, right, exactly. And I wonder about that. And because the other issue is that, you know, I, I could also see a scenario, and I would totally be guilty of this, if someone's interested in CAR-T therapy, I would be like, oh, wink, wink, you're not transplant. I'm not planning transplant for you. Correct. Put them on the study, and if I don't like what I see, then I just take them off study and take them to transplant. And then, you know, and I'm not, uh, I'm not advocating uh-huh. for no, that no, no, behavior no, no. at all, but I can totally see that happening if, if the patient or I am unhappy with how they got randomized. And that's human nature for both clinicians and patients. But then you'd end up seeing that, you know, the patients who are truly transplant ineligible and don't get CAR-T are probably also being cherry-picked to be a kind of sticker population. Because if, sent- if the patients who then in control arm who you yeah. think could get the transplant, go to transplant, and transplant works, they're getting centered at that point. Sure. Or, you know, yes. I think it's just muddying the waters No, 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 you're right. In- intention to treat would be okay. If anything, it will penalize your cartitude uh, investigational arm but a per protocol or censoring at the date of transplant which i know they're going to do that i totally think they're going to do that yeah then of course it'll bias it the other direction it's very interesting okay that's an interesting this and, is car, and you know this is a bcma car th- this is another bcma car it's a it's a llama derived uh no, it's uh, a llama it's, it's derived one where basically it's by epitopic binding so it binds bcma at two sites on the same uh variable frequency on the same basically the the surface llama of the car. or camel 
I think this one's llama, only llama. because I feel like when I hear farm animals come up in ash talks, I, yeah. I, I, I do listen to that. I see. Okay. And wh- what is the thing about the llama? It has a very short antibody. <sighs> yes, I don't know. Yeah, it's something about nanobodies, yeah, something yeah. along those lines. Um, I thought camel, but okay, you're saying llama. Okay, I got, I got to go back to my farm animals. Uh, but let me ask you this. Um, uh, of course, the control arm, they'll get Revlimid maintenance. I don't know, actually. I assume so. I don't know. I haven't seen the protocol for it, but I assume so. And yeah. then, and don't tell me, the primary point is PFS. I, I presume that it is. <laughs> I, 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 that's, that's a really good point. I wonder what the primary but point is. But I actually don't know, for example, in the CAR-T arm, are they going to also get relevant maintenance? Um, and I don't know. So I, I think this just got posted. What is the practice of... Um, uh, you generally, or at least Idacabtagene... Mm-hmm. It does not have uh, PI maintenance. Uh, it does, sorry, it doesn't have uh, imid maintenance. Not, not no, no, because at least as of now, we're yes. using in patients where generally speaking, they have mental and med refractory disease, probably PI refractory disease. And so, you know, I think practically what we're doing is just watching them. And when they progress, we move on. When the disease progresses, we move on to something else. That's interesting. But you know what I think? Very soon, people will give uh, Idacel, and then they just put people back on therapy. Because the median PFS is eight months. Yeah. And, and you know, just put them on Darrow. What's the downside? Uh, or, or honestly, imids. I mean, yeah. as, as much imids. as I hate, I mean, because I feel like no one, anyone who says they know exactly how lenalidomide works is lying, right? Because I feel like we kind of have some thought, ideas. But I thought it was Icaros and Icaros and, and, and all this. Yeah, yeah I think. But every every year, I feel like we find some new pathway that lenalidomide <laughs> is acting on. But yeah. I think over overall, I think it does potentiate the immune system. So you know, I certainly for some of our commercial CD19 CAR T therapies, you know, if you have a if you don't have the I, so, for example, post Yescarta or Kimraya relapse, you know, I think anecdotally, if they relapse, if they had a good response and they lost it, I might consider a checkpoint inhibitor. But for a lot of patients where they have a little a PR, maybe, but not quite there, we often just off-label throw a lenalidomide at them to say, oh, maybe potentially the immune system might work. Sure. And honestly, I've seen it work. Now, whether those patients, that's not randomized data, so whether those patients were going to have a deepening of response themselves uh, just without any Revlimid, lenalidomide, I don't know, but it's but interesting. It's, it's definitely intellectually interesting. I don't know if it's actually true or not that Imid's potentiate the CAR-T effect. Oh, I can promise you, I can promise you there'll be, in five years, there'll be 100 basic science articles that show Imid uh, favorably potentiate CAR-T. <laughs> I, 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 I wouldn't at all be surprised by that. I, now, does that mean that these patients should be on Revlimid forever? I don't know, but, and, but it, it is also interesting if truly, well, I mean, this is a good example of this, right? So going back to our article, uh, to the, the landscape review of CAR-T therapies, I think we were interested, we included those as, to my focus on thematic intent, you know, yes, what percentage yes, of trials yes. were interested in taking existing CAR-T therapies and either making them work better or yes. be safer, improving supportive care. This kind of trial would fall into that category. And unfortunately, also a very, very small number of trials. It was, I think, 28 out of 800 trials that were actually trying to improve what we already have. You know, I think it's really easy for us to go and, and try all these new CAR-T products. I am, and my research interests are really taking what we have and trying to make it safer, trying to make it more accessible, trying to make it work better for our patients. I'm looking at this email that you sent me, uh-huh. and I see that you are quite masterful because you've already hit two, the first two of your high points. And let me just reemphasize to listeners sure. what these high points are. One, uh, in your uh, broad CAR-T landscape paper, now mm-hmm. at JAMA Network Open, uh, you find that out of uh, over 800 studies, uh, only 10 or 1% of all trials are RCTs of CAR-T therapy versus non-CAR-T therapy. Um, wow. Uh, very low percentage. Mm-hmm. It's a, a ratio of, uh, you know, and uh, actually if one looked at like um, for every thousand people get put on the study, what per- how many people will be put on non-randomized versus randomized? 
I'm sure be even more dramatic. Agreed. Because yeah. even the RCTs, I, I, it's in the paper. I'd have to go back and look. But the sample size are very small. Sure, they, sure. Like a, a 30 patient RCT is probably not a really good RCT. <laughs> but it's fine. At least they're trying. They At least they're trying. For, for trying to randomize. At least they got a something. coin. They're flipping. That's, yeah. that's exactly right. Okay. And then the next key finding. Only 28% of studies or 4% of trials were improving outcomes with existing therapies. So it's easy to uh, you know keep making uh, new tools. Um, but the thing about uh, oncology is that dosing, concomitant medications, mm-hmm. um, prophylactic medications, mm-hmm. managing neuro- neurotoxicity, managing side effects, these are so important. Um, in fact, to some degree, a lot of the gains of cytotoxic drugs are we're just so much better at the supportive care around it, right? Uh, Ondansetron made platinum better. That's like we, whether um, you and Edris, um forgetting his name already. Oh my goodness gracious. Asco president at Stanford. For, for it is Sledge. Okay, right. Yeah, it was a beautiful podcast, but you talked about that as well, just how anti-emetics have done such wonders for chemotherapy. Similarly, CAR-T has room for improvement there. I completely agree. And, and we're seeing some movement in that. Now, we were talking about this right before the show, you know, like there was an interesting ASCO EHA abstract about, for example, prophylactic anakinra. Mm. And there have been studies of prophylactic tocilizumab mm-hmm. outside of the Zuma Yescarda study where they're doing prophylactic steroids. though. I feel like, from my understanding, most of these are just kind of not QI, most of them are just kind of, we changed our protocol, our SOP at our institution, we allowed for prophylactic TOSI, and we did it. Before and, here's and after what we found, Before and after. which is experimental That's exactly yeah. right. Which is still moving, the, and, and most of CAR-T therapy, I think, has advanced that way, yes. for better or for worse. But yes. I, I feel like those are the kind of things where I would like to see an RCT, because I think it is feasible, and I think you'll see the outcome you're looking for pretty quickly. Yes. It's a very simple study to do. You're doing something a lot, and you want to figure out which of these moving parts is uh, beneficial and can and can abrogate some of the downsides. The other thing that's very interesting to me is um, all of the drugs that you use to tame the CAR-T, they're always branded drugs. No, everyone, no one ever wants to try any of those generics, huh? Except for corticosteroids, but agreed. Yeah. But there's more. I mean, I, and you know, I know you have talked about Twitter and your prior podcast. I feel like every time I mention them, Lenzolumab, I feel like it's I can never pronounce it. It's that? an anti-GMCSF uh, monoclonal antibody. Okay. Um, I have no conflicts of interest with anyone there, but every time I ever tweet about it from an ASH abstract, you see all these, you know, one tweet ever people commenting on it being, oh my God, Lenzolumab is going to kick Tosi's butt. Be like, okay, I, you, I'm glad you feel that way, but I want to see the data. <laughs> you know? <laughs> You're alluding to the fact that if there, are one t- if there are only one tweet about Lenzolumab, they probably own some shares of Lenzolumab. Uh, that, that, that is yeah. that. Or anyone that quotes a dollar sign in their tweet, like, you know, as, as a kind of a refer to the company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, but, you know, I'm glad that they're trying, right? Because I think, and so for example, yes, Carta, actually Captive Mucilolusil, is known for just being an, uh, a more fiery, a more angry product, right? Maybe because of CD28 costumulatory domain or for whatever reason, you do tend to see higher rates of CRS and ICANS with that than with the other CD19 drugs and CAR-T Can therapies. You ex- and explain that part to listeners because my understanding is this is the only product with CD28 costumulatory. Um, All the other products have... Or, or Tocardis or Brexacaftagene. So they're the same maker. So besides right. Kite, which is also CD20, right. everything else is for 1BB. Um, 4-1BB. But including, doesn't Kite have also have one four one BB? Oh right. So well, it's in terms of like yeah, where where the costim and where the the transmembrane domain is. But I think in short, uh, for the for the listener, even within let's say the the class of CD nineteen or the CAR T therapy. So for example, let's say in, in aggressive lymphomas, uh, you have. Uh, Brianzi, which is lysocaptogene, Maralusa, lysocaptogene, you have Yescarta, Axicaptogene, Salusil, and you have Camraya, which is T-Sagenic Lusil. 
Um, they have their own flavors for CRS. I would say that yeah. Yescarta tends to have the most, kind of the earliest, Kim Rai is kind of in the middle, and then uh, Brianzi, the newest one, like the Captagene, tends to have it a little bit more delayed, more yes. kind of an outpatient-friendly picture. And so what's changing that? Maybe the coastal inventory domain, like 41BB as the, the part beneath the car that actually gets a T-cell to activate might just allow for a bit like slower proliferation, more of a memory response. And then with lysocaptogene, they have this proprietary ratio CD4 to CD8 that oh, may actually help with CD, so with a say. CRS so they timing. Claim. Right, exactly right. Well, but but I, I will say, if they want to keep it proprietary, I'm fine because I love the idea of lysocaptogene being outpatient friendly. Okay, Because that's, yes. you know, what, a lot of my research and my interests are how do I make, how do I get CAR-T into the outpatient setting? And that's why I think the prophylactic stuff is so important. If you have CRS four hours into your infusion, you're going to the ER that day, yeah. you have to be in the hospital. Yeah. And ho- and doctors don't get paid for that. You can speak to the NTAP stuff sure. better than I can. Um, it's kind of a crappy situation for patients. Yes. Like everyone loses, I feel like, with that. But if you can really get to a situation where you can kind of save CRS for at least two or three days thereafter yes. and kind of tame it, control it. I think you can get keep patients in clinic every day, kind yeah. of an outpatient model. I think that's a win for everybody. Yeah, that's that that's good. Wow, you you covered a lot, and that's good. That's, that's, <laughs> I also talk a mile a minute. No, I'm learning good. that from Mina and from you. I feel like. Let's shift gears and let's talk about some of the other things we've worked on over the last year in the era of COVID. You had a couple of papers. One was an editorial to a very interesting comparison in JAMA Network Open, mm-hmm. and another was sort of a proposal on how to do randomized trials. Let's talk about randomized trials in oncology. I love that. And I, I will say, it's kind of you to say my paper is really our paper. It was your idea, and I was just boost on the ground. <laughs> well, I think find some end note citations. <laughs> you but did. I appreciate you, the you, opportunity to you learn did more than that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk about, um, talk about the. Um, Let's talk about the editorial on JAMA Network Open. Absolutely. I think it's a fascinating principle, and I think a more applicable now than ever before with the you know, plethora of real-world data out there. And I think the, the question on the table was our observational real-world studies, are they suitable to make cancer treatment recommendations in the absence of an RCT to actually back them up? And so I think what this group did, um, and let me make sure I'm setting the paper correctly, it was by uh, Kumar et al. Uh, yeah, I think uh, UCSD group. Yes, indeed. And the, last, and the first author was... Um, Abhishek Kumar. Abhishek Kumar, also yeah. And the last author was, what's his name? Uh, James Murphy. James Murphy. And I think he's the PI. Mm-hmm. Okay. They did a very interesting paper. Exactly right. And so what they did was they used the uh, the National Cancer Database, so basically a very, very large repository of patients in terms of their demographics, their staging, their clinical characteristics, and so forth. And they basically, and I think it was a really elegant methodology, they, they re-ran published RCTs and, through that database. So they yes. pretended like, like all those patients were being randomized within that database and saw what happened with them. Yes. Uh, with the idea being is that, well, here we actually have an RCT, and how often do the registry-based data, how often does it match that? And, you know, the I'd rather guess what I was guessing the answer would be. I, I would like to guess that it would have been pretty high. Yes. This is a pretty good database, multi-center, lots of patients, and a lot of, you know, uh, possible confounders are being accounted for in this data set, yes. as far as I can surmise. And unfortunately, that was not the case. Um, I think that the, the, uh, the concordance between them, if I recall correctly, is only about 50% or so. Yeah. Let me see if I can find the exact numbers. You look for that. And you. while you look for that, I'm going to make a point, which is that um, 
And listeners will wonder, what's that sound of construction behind us? I guess they're building a new building. There's always a building. If you're not building a new building in academic medicine, you're falling behind. I, it depends on the city. I, I, <laughs> around, I love it there, but I think I went eight years without ever seeing a building get built. Oh, because it's just a little real estate. It's, just, it's a smaller city, yeah. and it's a, things get repaired, new buildings don't come up. And yes. then I moved to Philly, and I feel like every hour, I feel like it's like a new like uh, apartment complex coming up on any side of me. <laughs> San Francisco lost to being built, but never real estate. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. That's a, a for another day another day yes uh but we at the general we got a new hospital coming up um okay so here here's i think what's the interesting background um there've been many people who are interested in knowing how well do observational studies recapitulate the causal conclusions of randomized trials and there've been lots of comparisons but one of the things that plagues all these comparisons is you can only compare things topics where people have done both and there are a lot of topics where people haven't done both and the nice thing about the um, the Kumar paper that we wrote the editorial to was they say, let's just pick a bunch of randomized control trials and do all the observational studies ourselves so we don't have any selection bias in the topics for which they're both. So they remove one of these classic biases. And they do a good job, I think, of these observational studies. And I think the other thing the listeners should know is like in many walks of oncology, these national clinical trials database studies are um, – sorry, uh, NCDB studies mm-hmm. are – actually persuasive like people use them and make decisions based on it completely agree and they find there are huge differences in the results you get right and exactly and there are two sets of questions one was you know how often do the confidence intervals match up um, sure with, and i think a bigger question in my mind from a clinical perspective how often do the the real world clinical bottom lines yes. uh, are the same in terms of significant yes. non-significance in terms of one arm being better than the other arm and so forth and they found that to the first question of the confidence intervals, about a third of the time, 36% of the time to be precise, the real-world data confidence intervals fell outside the actual hazard ratio that was actually in the RCT that yes. was conducted. And then they found that only about half the time, actually less than half the time, were the actual clinical bottom lines concordant. So many times the observational data would have showed non-significant data results, the RCT did, the um, or they you know the vice versa happened very rarely thankfully very rarely did the observational real world data versus RCT yield different significant results uh-huh. but I think a lot of it where there was either a difference or no difference in one group and it was reversed in the other analysis yeah and that's important and you know we did something I thought was interesting in our little thing which we kind of put it in the following terms we basically said you know if an observational study says something's beneficial people are going to do it they just that's the way they are they're going to do it. If an observational study says we can't find a difference or there is no dif- there is no benefit or it's even decremental, then people are not going to do it. Um, so we said with that lens, if the observational study says do this aggressive or invasive practice, how often does a randomized trial recapitulate it? And I think we found that that was less than half the time. That's and, exactly correct. And if the observational study says don't do this, mm-hmm. then here the randomized trial, it, an, a null or a negative trial would confirm that. And we found that that was like 60% plus. Uh, two-thirds. Two-thirds. Exactly 67%. Right. So in other words, I think this is evidence that the observational study is biased in favor of doing the aggressive invasive thing. I completely agree. Now let's talk about what we see recently. There have been a number of these like real-world comparisons where they say, you know better than me. Um, they took the experience with CAR-T in some clinical trial, and they compare it against a data set. Uh, a data set of, uh, and what is this lymphoma data set they uh, love? Well, this was the myeloma data set, oh, the, the, ma- the mammoth Mammoth study. is myeloma. Lymphoma, there's one data set that they love to use. Uh, well, the Flatiron R topic with REPOC. No. I, I promise about... I wasn't going to talk about REPOC on this show. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so. okay, let's talk about mammoth first. Let's talk about mammoth. They make the same point. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the same 
caveat. I, I think the bigger principle here is a couple of things. So yes. one, an observational data set, as you know, is only as helpful as it was in that point in time. And I think Mammoth is already dated, right? The, the, those data were retrospective data looking back a couple of years now. And patients with myeloma every year are living longer and longer. And so that's, I think, one issue. Go ahead. I remembered Scholar. Oh, yes. yes. Scholar is the one in lymphoma. Mm-hmm. Mammoth is the one in... Th- and, but, but your thing is, these are people who took time and they put together the experience of a bunch of patients. But the problem is, your point, number one, it's dated. It's only as good as what happened back then. Exactly right. Which is not the same as what would happen now. Exactly right. And I think there's a lot of confounders that you could speak of better than I can that, that go into... It, it's the patients you don't catch in these data sets, the patients who are lost to follow-up, the right. patients who just don't even get registered there that I think are a problem. And with RCTs, you actually are able to control for the confounders you can't see in that data set. One thing I will add before I, I ask for your thoughts on that, I yeah. will say that um, propensity score weighting, which yes. I think they, they actually looked at just unadjusted versus regression versus propensity score weighting based analysis. This is Kumar actually, and colleagues. This is yes. Kumar and colleagues. And I actually found that it didn't move the needle that much. No. So even though it's it sounds nice, it like smells like me reviewing like an ash after the grant, they'd be like, oh, they Ooh, use weighting, score real weighting. world, IPS, whatever, whatever doesn't actually change the end result that much. But yes. let me stop there, and I know you're going to say about this. So. No, I agree. I mean, I think that that's what's so interesting here is like, I mean, I don't know. If we if we sit back and we like actually, like why do we care so much about this seemingly esoteric topic? The question is, we got to make clinical decisions all the time. We have randomized trials for some decisions. Some decisions we don't have randomized trials. When we don't have randomized trials for those decisions, people have different amounts of confidence. Mm-hmm. Most people I meet are pretty damn confident they know what's right. But these kinds of comparisons would suggest that you should really have a lot of serious doubts about whether or not you're doing is actually in the best interest of your patient. Because when these things are formally compared, we find there is a bias. The bias suggests the observational studies make you think things work when in fact they don't work. And um, we're like nomads. We just got interrupted. <laughs> it's it's for a good cause. Clinical care always takes precedence. Of course. And when we're recording a podcast without masks in a hospital. Can I say that, that we're not wearing a mask right now? We're both vaccinated. We are on campus. I won't specify which hospital it is. <laughs> I, I don't know what to think. But, uh, I mean, can you say that? I would think, let me put it to you this way. I would think that if test positivity rate is like one-tenth of one percent, Everyone in a room is vaccinated. Mm-hmm. I would assume that that would be pretty safe. I think there are lots of things to worry about in this building. Probably earthquake is a higher risk. Yeah, to be fair, I'm worried about <laughs> HR. <laughs> Nobody else, but agreed, yes. HR, well, <laughs> you never know. I'll tell you what, they probably don't listen past the first hour of a podcast. Uh, this is very true. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is a clever point. Um, where were we? I don't know. I uh, think we were talking some about how, well, about... I think in, in real world data, I think the confounder you can never account for is that healthier patients get more aggressive therapies Correct. because the docs think they can handle it. Correct. That's, and that's confounding by indication. And I think that's the, that's the toughest confounder. And like, what does it mean to be healthy? People are like, oh, you can abstract that from their lymphocyte neutrophil ratio and, and their ECOG in the chart. But the truth is you can't, there's something about looking at somebody with your eye that you'd never fully write down. And you have a sense of their wellness that you never really document because there's no way to document it. It is a thing that comes with time. I completely agree. Well, and I, I think at least, and you know this better than I do, especially in solid uh, that even with CAR-T, I just feel like the social component of things, you know, like can they get to clinic every Correct. day? Where are they living? Yes. And I think that makes a big difference for big me difference. in my mind. Frailty doesn't quite... Frankly, captures who they are as a person, but not like who they are in the context of the world around them and, and how easy it is for them to get here and back. Yeah. yeah. And there's frailty that you think is attributable to disease, and there's frailty that's pre-existing or independent of disease. That's totally true. And if you think totally it's due true. to disease, you push treatments, but if you think it's due to other things, you are reluctant. 
I think it's really tricky. I mean, I don't think there is a good way to, you, you know the feeling as an oncologist, you walk in the room and you just take one look and you have a sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach. And that's something that doesn't capture in EMR variables or even administrative variables, certainly not. I totally agree. I, for better or for worse, I feel like I always compliment patients when the time is right when I say that, well, like, you look better than your chart does. Oh, you know, yeah. <laughs> like you were in the hospital for six months and blah, 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 yeah. blah. But here you are walking around, going fishing, like good for you. Yeah. And let's figure out a, a, a more intensive treatment modality accordingly. You know, I always say that randomized trials do three things. And you've talked about one of them, which is randomized trials minimize or distribute both measured and unmeasured confounders. Um, they don't fully eliminate them, and that's okay. They sort of equilibrate outcome distributions in the absence of therapeutic effects. Um, those are equilibrated, so it's kind of a fair counterfactual and aggregate. And then, the, then what you see in terms of different therapeutic effects is the effect of the treatment. So, okay, so that's what they do with the confounding. But the next thing they do, I think that's under-discussed, is they set time zero. What, is, what do I mean by that? Um, it's really difficult in retrospective observational studies to define what the zero time is for people. And the more you try to do such studies, the more you see how fraught that is. For instance, if you want to say like, you know, do colon cancer patients who take statins live longer than those that don't? Well, the question is, well, when do you consider taking a statin? If they took it 10 years before the diagnosis, two years before, one year before, started it within six months, started within eight months. And the more you start putting the intervention occurring within some time period after the diagnosis, you're building in guarantee or lead guarantee time, which is time, immortal time, which is time that you couldn't experience the event of interest if you were on the arm that got the thing. Okay, so that's a, just a, this time zero problem is a bigger problem than people think. And I think there are people like Miguel Hernan and others who at Harvard who believe that time zero is actually a bigger problem than the confounding problem. Mm -hmm. then the third thing I think it does that people don't talk about is the multiple hypothesis testing multiplicity very true yeah you know like you can only run so many randomized trials and i know they try really hard with pembro to run as many as they can <laughs> but there's still a limit and what that means is you can only test your hypothesis a limited number of times um whereas with these retrospective studies you can test your hypothesis infinitely many times and so i'm sure in some data sets you know retrospectively kyprolis beats velcade mm -hmm. i'm sure that that's the case k beats v KRD beats VRD in somebody's EMR data set because there's so many data sets and so many people can run that analysis, but we do have a, a, a randomized control trial run by the cooperative group and there's no difference in PFS. I love that point. I mean, the same actually like with my digital health interest, almost class like machine learning. Yes. You know that it, you, you can take a data set and you can have the computer chew on it for 10 years and get this beautiful algorithm, but you need to validate it prospectively for exactly that reason. In this case, RCT is a way to do that. And it's, it's overfit, so it's like um, they find something that explains the outcome that you didn't know. So one thing I heard... I don't know, did this come up on this podcast? Somebody told me this was they, they ran machine learning on pathologic slides mm -hmm. and they trained it to recognize lymphoma versus not lymphoma or something like that. And the algorithm they realized had trained to find dust on the cover slip. If there's dust on the cover slip, it was normal. And if there was no dust on the cover slip, it was pathology. <laughs> Because the residents were looking at the pathology over and over more again. More and more and more again. That's yeah. hilarious. So something like that. Did That's... this come up on this podcast? Who told me this anecdote? I can't remember. I, I, I will totally buy it. I mean, I, I will say RCTs aren't perfect. And I, we just alluded to, I think, for if, if the two arms, if you don't truly have equipoise with it between them, I feel like then you're you're stuck. Because in the RCT, it's kind of a, a, a skewed population going into it. Right. I think myeloma, unfortunately, is littered with examples of such. I'm right. sure other cancers have that as well. Right. So this was the first foray into randomized trials. Now talk about the paper you wrote in Nature Reviews, Clinical Oncology, on 
on the recovery subgroups, plan. yeah, and recovery. Oh, of course, okay. and, and, and on pragmatic RCTs. Yes. It, it, just because I think one of the things that we don't learn in residency is like how difficult it is to run a clinical trial and how impossible it is, I feel like, to run a clinical trial, yes. especially when CROs are involved, even without them, just in terms of logistics, the paperwork, and so forth. And so in the midst of COVID uh, across the United Kingdom, the NHS ran one of its biggest cohorts of recovery trial with just you know, several treatments in dexamethasone. And if I recall correctly, they made it as easy as possible to randomize patients. It was a computer prompt. You just put in the patient's name and NHS linker and just basic information about them. And are there any arms that a priority that you would not feel comfortable with them getting? Mm -hmm. For example, if a Jehovah's Witness, they would not feel comfortable getting convalescent plasma. So you identify that a priority so you know the patient and provider biases or limitations, so to speak. And then, boom, they get their prompt and you roll. And, and I should add, it was only for treatments that were available in that hospital as well. You could also identify that. So you would, it, it made randomization very simple and it made randomization very pragmatic. And I think the whole point of pragmatic RCTs, I hadn't heard of that until you brought it up to me. Apparently in the 90s, I think there was a fad of pragmatic trials, mainly in, I think, cardiovascular yes. medicine. I don't think we've seen that many in oncology, but it was so simple and it worked, right? They had like 7,000 patients that were, ended up being randomized, which is a huge population and it probably easily the majority of patients with COVID who are hospitalized in the UK. And you were able to get a, a very simple but uh, decided, um, in this case, a, a mortality benefit in favor of dexamethasone among hospitalized patients who are hypoxic. And the reason they were able to do that was because they included them in the study. Yeah. And I think it's really generalizable when you make it pragmatic. Like mm -hmm. it, it applies to the average NHS patient who may also be on dialysis, but also on O2. Should they get dex? Yeah. You know, because they're probably included in, in decent numbers in this study. Whereas, you know, so many of the trials that we see in our line of work, we do everything to go the other way. I completely agree. <laughs> well, and, and I think paperwork begets paperwork, right? Because yes. if you have like 20 inclusion, exclusion criteria, like, yeah, I'm sure some people like that because they like pouring through and figuring it out exactly. Is your GFR correct by this metric or MDRD or whatever? I hate that. I think easier is better. And what you had brought up, which I think is a really good point, is... You know, let's say, for example, that the trial was like, oh, we gotta, we have to exclude patients who are on oxygen. They're too sick to, to get in our interventions. They would not have found a survival benefit. For so, parents. okay, this is such a good finding because recovery was so big, so uh, well done that they could run the whole trial, look for the intention to treat re result, but also have pre-specified subgroups. One included people who were hospitalized, not on O2. And it was no benefit. In fact, maybe even deleterious. Hospitalized on O2, benefit modest hospitalized on mechanical ventilation biggest benefit mm -hmm. and your point is if it was like so many oncology trials where you excluded the sickest of the sick you would have missed the biggest efficacy signal that's exactly right that's exactly right and i just feel like there's a lot we can learn from that from oncology i mean yeah. i remember my our original punchline i think the journal made us take it out was like oh like you know who knows how to use dexamethasone the best you think oncologists do but actually the uk does you know because uh. they, they know how to run the trial with steroids the best yes but here you know i think there's a lot we can learn from them not just about steroids just about how to run a trial where keep the inclusion criteria simple enroll patients and have in your protocol a way to to enrich and to actually test for interactions with these high-risk subgroups because then you actually get results that are generalizable in general yeah so i wish like for you know, we could just pick something like liver cancer. We have trials, serafinib versus placebo, linvantinib versus serafinib, atezobev versus serafinib. They have very strict inclusion criteria. Most people have good performance status, child's pew A, which, you know, you and I don't see a lot of. Agreed. And then we immediately extrapolate those results to people who don't fit. And there's always that usual consternation about how far can you extrapolate or not, who should get atezobev or not, et cetera, et cetera. The easy solution is you run the same study 
run it like recovery, take everybody, randomize them, and then have a pre-specified subgroup called the quote, trial eligible people, i.e. the people whose, you know, uh, Charles P was perfect and whose ECOG is perfect and who's, you know, four years younger than the stated age. Um, I think that's the easiest way to sort it. So then you can still find the efficacy signal in the ideal population that exists, but you'll also know that it's not, or, or you'll know the limits of generalizability. That's, that's exactly correct. Completely correct. I thought that was, I actually think it's like probably one of the most clever things that we've done in the last year, but you never know because who knows who, right? <laughs> you never know if people I, will it, recognize it as Well, such. I mean, for me, honestly, I, I think the pragmatic nature, but also oper- operationalizationally, is yeah. that how I should use that word or, correctly? Upper, it, upper, upper. From a logistical perspective. Correct. That's a better way. <laughs> uh, exactly. Just how easy it was to enroll patients. Yeah. It is so much more difficult here, I feel, in oncology because there's so many inclusion exclusion criteria. You have to wait for a trial slot to open and there's lots and lots and lots of paperwork. And here, certainly with paperwork involved, but a lot of the data mining, you could figure out after the fact. And I think just that moving all the paperwork after the enrollment, I think is a huge step forward. And I would love to see more of that happening in oncology. It's got to happen because I think... You know, the people who run trials who are known to be good are the people with the fewest protocol deviations. And one of the reasons they get by with so few protocol deviations is they quickly commit to memory the protocol. Mm-hmm. And so people I know who are really good at trials, they can read the protocol once and then they know, like almost, they quickly memorized it. So they know all oh, this and that. And if this happens, then that, then you do this. And they really rarely have protocol violations. Mm-hmm. And protocol violations beget more paperwork, which is that's ironic because the person who's like not doing a good job has a lot of violations. They have to do a lot more paperwork and then it crushes them. And then they, they quit and they go work somewhere else. Um, <laughs> I think that's part of it. And then the other thing I think that is unspoken is that, you know, the people who have created the bureaucracy, they were not evil intent. They think their intent was good. They saw prior injustice or incorrect things done in trials and they sought to correct it. But ironically, like so many things, it was an unanticipated, it was, the solution isn't helping. It's actually making the problem worse. They haven't addressed the problem, which is control arms are bad and there's not crossover when you need it and all these kind of core problems they've never even touched, but they've given you a lot of bullshit to do that made it harder to do the project. I completely agree. Well, and just sheer like the ludicrousness of the fact, for example, that like the trial sponsors cannot uh, access our EMR. So then all of a sudden we're killing 400 trees to print out every CRF, every medical record, possible a patient they can look at them thereafter. And I think it can be optimized a lot. I've seen that where they like print everything out and then they sit in a room in the hospital and oh my God. Well, I mean, invariably it's a room that the fellow would otherwise have had to sit in. So, you know, I, I, I am, as, as someone as today, I'll test you where it's always difficulty finding a room in a hospital. I am very personally slighted by that when my room gets taken by, by this, like a two day monstrosity looking at paper and clinical trial stuff. At one place <laughs> I worked, they like saved the nicest room with the best view for these people. I, 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 <laughs> Keep that would be interesting how that correlates with uh, how, ah. how, the, how the audit goes. Exactly. Yes, how the audit goes. Okay, this is interesting. I wonder if we should shift gears to the last topic. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I guess there's maybe maybe two. We'll come back to myeloma, which I think is so interesting to talk about. Let's talk about social media. You're on social media. I, I attempt to be. I, I play a, a, a Twitter, Twitter expert by day. I don't know that I actually am one. But I guess, how do you use it and what do you think about it? Yeah, I honestly, I think the main... So I, I think two things have happened with Twitter for me, which I think are great. One, I think the professional networking, obviously. I think I, I met you through Twitter. I've met I a lot of my true. co-authors through Twitter, especially in the era of COVID. The other thing, actually, that I, I think has been very fortuitous is actually... Um, uh, I'll venture the personal for a little bit. So as you know, I have a five-month-old son now. We actually moved to my in-laws for a couple of months. And uh, when we moved, our mail forwarding, I realized that all the 
the pharma sponsored, you know, journals and brochures and like newsletters, all of them, I guess they just don't bother forwarding them. Oh, there's some so, rules about forwarding. Okay. I, which is great. So all of a sudden for a four month period, I didn't open my mailbox every day and get like 30 yeah. newsletters of updates that are all, you know, like regurgitated derivatives <laughs> of the derivative of the actual trial. And I realized that, you know, I don't need them anymore. I have Twitter. I see. And I know that sounds ridiculous to say, but especially if you refine your Twitter feed, you know, specifically for me, I'm interested in myeloma, digital health, amyloidosis, CAR T therapy. Um, I actually feel like the, the commentaries, the bite-sized commentaries I get there are one, very timely because the paper just got published, two, include the author of the piece and not, again, someone regurgitating the review of the sure, review. Sure, sure. At least it's um, from the horse's mouth. And, and you, can, you can ask them about it. You know, like when the paper came out about, for example, convalescent plasma improving survival in hospital patients with blood cancer, I was able to ask Mike Thompson, you know, who's a giant in cancer care, but also follows me on Twitter and vice versa, just a question, how does it relate to monoclonal antibodies? And you can't get that from reading these derivatives where I think you're only hearing like a third party take on things, okay. nor can you engage with the audience, with the author again, okay. and nor can you get the satisfaction of knowing that I didn't participate in the death of 400 trees to get all these, you know, stupid <laughs> journals sent to my house. I don't know, does this still happen to attendings? I, maybe I, maybe for fellows, we get more of them because they're trying to catch us while we're young. I guess I had gotten a fair bit, you know, we had the, um, in my old place, we had the, um, I guess to be honest, since COVID hit, you know, I've been here since COVID, you know, so I, I haven't been actually checking my, um, who knows what's in my mailbox? I'm not even checking. But <laughs> in, my, in my old place, my mailbox was just so full of like these rag, and by the way, they run a rag journal, but yet they insist on putting it in a plastic bag. Which uh, is so true. No, I, 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 I love that metaphor. Exactly. Yeah. I was like, why does it, what is like, you know, uh, I don't know, there's an old joke about the kinds of magazines that come in plastic bags, but these magazines come in plastic bags. What are they worried about? That the, the, the postal worker will peruse, you know, the latest apps? You know, what are they worried What's the, what's this just secret that you put in the plastic bag? But then you tear open the bag, and of course, a few of those uh, cards, index cards, fly out. Mm-hmm. And then you see this thing, and it's like, you know, it's just puff pieces about all these things. And it's like very rarely, you know, thoughtful. Yeah, and it's, and it's unidirectional. You're oh, only getting like, their take on things. And like, and, and, and I've learned some stuff from there. And definitely first year fellowship, I used to love reading those, but I actually have transitioned entirely to Twitter now. Just like I feel like I can use it for real-time knowledge dissemination and, and gathering and, and exchange, which I think is nice. And then what are the downsides? The downside definitely that it's a time sink, for sure. The downsides uh, is that I, I feel like sometimes I'm like, you know, like, oh, I can't go to bed just yet. I have to respond to this, like, like oh, the still cell study just got published in the Lancet. I can't go to bed yet. I got I to gotta tweet about this right now. Oh, you feel you know? that compulsion. A little bit. I'm going to get better with that, okay. I think, with time. I think having a kid help with that because, you know, a five-month-old does not care about still cell. They care about having a milk bottle ready for them. Sure. Um, but I, I actually think that's how I've learned to really... Uh, admire Twitter. I, I am not a Twitter pugilist. I don't fight on Twitter. I feel like you are, are not afraid of like wading into the muddy water mm-hmm. where I, I quickly that, yes. just ghost myself from any hint of a disagreement. So uh-huh. I think that might evolve for me over time. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do like it for those two. Information dissemination and exchange and then the networking. And then how do you avoid altogether these topics like you don't talk about SARS-CoV-2? That is true. I, how do I avoid getting into horrible arguments about them? Uh, there's a saying on the on the internet, you know, don't feed the trolls. Yes. So I do my best not to feed the trolls. Hmm. Okay. Um, and and I mentioned the trolls come out, and and they're they're human beings, but they're just biased in how they approach things. For example, any nice cool pharma drug like lenzolumab, the one I mentioned earlier, they come out, just ignore them, yeah. engage or minimally, just because I feel like yeah, like 
the more time you spend on Twitter, there's like that marginal benefit where you're yes. not getting any. And then you get to a point where I think you lose and everyone on Twitter loses, including, you know, yourself. Yeah. Okay. You have a good attitude, I guess. And you're a little different than Nina because Nina's more, she uses it and then just boom, just turns it off. Correct. And I think I have difficulty doing that. I remember being so surprised by that, how little she uses it between conferences. And I think that's actually a really good way to maximize. And obviously she's an amazing, when she uses Twitter, she's very good at succinctly capitalizing, you know, summarizing what's important and doing so in a meme worthy or memory worthy way which I think is half the battle right with Twitter um, how do I keep it from going overboard I think I do try to focus only on because I'm not an expert in anything I'm not an expert really in anything to be fair I'm not board certified in anything but medicine but that, that being said I presume to to someday be an expert in myeloma cartilage and, sure. and so forth so I think those are the only topics that I actually talk about and I, I ask questions about you know, I, I act like I'm actually trying to engage knowledge dissemination. If someone tells me that I'm wrong, I use the, the thanks emoji and say, okay, thanks. I didn't know that. Thank you. Yeah. I, I think that that's a very good good way to do it. I think you're, you're, you're hitting a good balance. I think what the trouble, I mean, the things that suck me in obviously are probably still a big chunk of what I do is oncology. I know I make this podcast and I think about oncology all the time. But why do I get sucked into COVID? I guess I get sucked in because I feel like, I don't know. Uh, uh, like some some policy is deeply miscalibrated, and I'm like, well, Jesus Christ! But but it's one of those tragedies that comes up. But I agree yeah. with you because I just feel like nobody talks about. I mean, you for over a year have been talking about, for example, like you know the fact that schools were closed for a year, yeah, and entirely so, and, and the side effects that will have on kids. Like ten years from now, yes. I'm sure it'll be a whole morass of studies <laughs> showing the psychological effects of SARS-CoV-2 on children, yada yada. But nobody's commenting about it in real time or just helping the conversation move forward. And I think I'm glad that you bring attention to that. Well, I think I. I don't know. I also felt like, you know, all these oncology things that are super interesting to you and I, the actual number of people they affect is like, actually, it's a large number from our point of view, but it's also compared to like some of these other social political things is like so small. But anyway, it's a balance. And I think it's a tricky place to be. Um, but you know, you're using it in a good way. Okay, let's talk about the next topic. I sure. could go on and on about this. Okay, multiple myeloma. Okay. You know, you're a myeloma, budding myeloma expert. I, uh, every field in oncology has some balance between, you know, innovation and evidence. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes you all change, we all change practices based on randomized phase three trials that are rather convincing, like Pembro chemo and frontline non-small lung cancer. And sometimes we change practice based on underpowered phase two studies, non-randomized studies, um, those sorts of things. Or, or just hope alone. Or hope, pure hope. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think amyloid is an example there yes. where I think we were running on hope and fumes for a long, long time. And, and now what? You have a DARA study. The, the Andromeda study. Andromeda, DARA yeah. And it, it's just so, I mean, it's, I, I, I can tell people that like when I started fellowship, there were no FDA approved drugs for AL amyloidosis and now there are. What, I, DARA. With DARA. Okay, I yeah, see, yeah. Right, so it's just DARA. It's just, okay. DARA okay, water, but it, it just, it's impressive to see that we're actually like moving the needle on these patients. Some of the patients like don't need transplant. Some of the patients have durable remissions. And I think that's really exciting. Are we going to see... There are RCTs in amyloid. It's difficult, but they've been small and underpowered and primarily negative. There was... Uh, and a lot of like PO-Melphalan is involved with that, which we don't really use that much in Correct. the US. So it's fine. But... Um, but let's come to myeloma for a second. Okay, fine. I realize I'm digressing on no, no, no. I, I like okay. talking about hope and amyloid because there is hashtag yes. hope. But yeah. Hashtag hope and amyloid? Yes. Well, the original slogan of rituximab was where hope and CD20 are found. <laughs> and you had to have both. <laughs> if you just had true. CD20, 
It couldn't give it. You have to have the hope to. Um, so what about, um, I don't know, I guess, I guess I'll ask you the same question I asked Nina Shaw. Uh-huh. Do you think myeloma doctors use the same standards of evidence to change practice as, and you might be closer to this, as GU oncologists, for instance? Let's take kidney cancer. Kidney cancer, you know, we have MSKCC risk criteria. Somebody could have said, like, look, we could take these people with a high-risk disease and maybe we should treat them with whatever, something different. But I think they run randomized control trials before they change their practice. I, I would agree with that. But what, you all don't. What makes us different about that? Yeah. And myeloma is, I think, unique among blood cancers, obviously, because patients are around for so long. And we have a lot of patients in that category, more so than, for example, acute leukemia. Okay. I guess um, acute leukemia is, like, um, bimodal. There's some people who are long-term survivors, right, but they're cured. But they don't okay. have any acute things going on, right? With myeloma, you have that, you're in that middle ground where they're living for a long time, but still have a lot of comorbidities, even from the disease sure. or from progression, okay. or from the side of treatment. Um, I wonder if that changes how we change our practice. I, I, I would like to believe that we're actually, no, no. Cause then you look at the endurance study okay. of KRD versus VRD, yes. which was ASCO plenary yes. last year. Yes, 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 and, all, yes, yes. and like, and this is a good example of science by press release, right? Yes. Where, the, where, this, the, where the, the headline is the KRD did not beat VRD Correct. population. Technically high risk patients were excluded. Okay. You don't see that footnote necessarily. Sure. You see it, but it's never in the headline there. So, but which high risk was excluded? Uh, the uh, I, that's true. I think fourteen sixteen was allowed. I'm sorry, I have to go back and look. I gotta but, check uh, it too. Yeah, okay. it, not all of them were, but four fourteen was definitely excluded. Um, fourteen sixteen. Uh, I'd have to go back and look. I I seventeen p definitely was not allowed on that particular study. And then so okay. then you then in the absence of RCTs, I think myeloma doctors, I think, are all over the map in terms of how we. Proceeding the data void yes. in terms of you know what do we call high risk and what are we hoping for with our patients and so forth. And yes. I think plenty of patients would take that void of data for high risk patients and say, well, I'm going to slam them with quadruple yes. and KRD yes. and so forth. And yes. other patients would other doctors would say, let me stick to what we know works and let's see over time. Because you and I have talked about this, and not all high risk patients are exactly the same. Correct. I think the biggest in, in my mind the biggest high risk factor is how some does over time. Yes. And of with course. myeloma, we have that benefit of being able to see what happened longitudinally. But then, what explains the culture? Because I think the same thing is true in like like kidney cancer. They could have carved out some high risk parts of it, and they said like you know here we're just going to give them every single drug we got. It's a good question. Maybe something about the silos of myeloma, how you can definitely tell like an East Coast myeloma doc from like a West Coast myeloma doc or a Mayo myeloma doc, mm-hmm. which is approaching mm-hmm. very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. That perhaps might be part of it, why we are such a, we are drawn, we, 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 the inertia in myeloma, I think, is how you just kind of keep doing what we're already doing yeah. and we cherry pick the data to fit what we're already doing. Seduced by deeper responses, MRD. Oh, Maybe also you, you measure your disease much more closely. Uh, and that's a good point. That, that's actually a good point. So I, I feel like we, we tend not to change our practice. I feel like that often transplanters keep doing transplant, non-transplant, or keep finding anything but transplant. <laughs> but then MRD comes and everyone rolls to MRD yeah. without the data set to, to the data to really match it yet. Why don't you talk? Well, actually, and my other theory is also there's something about, um, I have to say my theory. Um, you know, there is, uh, there's cost of drugs and then there's like cost of diagnosis per month. And my understanding is that like the cost of a diagnosis of myeloma per month just like crushes everybody because think about it. How many drugs you've given yeah. Four drug combos plus denosumab plus, you know, the scans you're getting on an average myeloma patient, you're getting pets maybe twice a year sometimes, or even more frequently once they become, you know, once the light chains become unreliable to follow or the M protein becomes unreliable, it's a pet 
Yeah. And then bone marrow is all the time. You're bone marrow all the time. Down, especially if you're trying to go down MRD road, yeah. you're always trying to keep an eye on it. Once you get that MRD negativity, now you're like, oh, we got to keep it there. We don't want to lose it. you got to yeah. be looking to keep it there, which I also don't know about. We can talk about that separately. Yeah, so that's the next thing we're we'll talk about. But I mean, I think... I, so I think it's a, I mean, I think that, I don't know, if I, I, I should finally give my answer. My answer is something like, I think there is something about the culture of blood cancers where you've, the blood cancer doctors have always been seduced by surrogate endpoints in part because they have led to some true breakthroughs, like curing some types of acute leukemia. Um, blood cancer is smaller. Budgetary impact is smaller. So payers aren't going to put their uh, thumb, they're not going to weigh down so hard. That's I mean, true. Okay, so that's one thing. Um, and... And I think the influence of the industry is greatest in myeloma. I mean, myeloma has like, you just have more, more drugs, more involvement, more trials. And, and, and I bet that like dollar per month of diagnosis, like some of the highest things would be like local bladder cancer. Cause they're always getting people looking up in there and giving, washing it out with all sorts of potions and Agreed. Agreed. and, and myeloma is going to be very high up there. I think somebody, I, th- I thought I saw some data on this, but we'll come back to it. Let's talk about MRD. You've done some work on MRD. What the hell is MRD for those who don't know, and and what what is the hope and what is the data? Uh, I love that. Uh, so MRD, it's funny how you know. I remember a time. You remember a time when MRD used to mean like mass related donor and transplant, <laughs> right? Exactly. And now no one says now it's all SIB or MSD because MRD has completely washed the old MRD away. So a measurable <laughs> residual disease. Yeah. And so the idea is that with like next generation flow cytometry or next generation sequencing, can you detect that? microscopic proportion of cells, like one out of 100,000, maybe one out of a million cells. And it's important, I think, in myeloma because this is the only time that we're actually looking at number of cells, so to speak, a number of DNA copies, so to sure. speak. But generally, you know, an M spike is not a cell, it's a protein. It's and I the think so, it, That's exactly right. right. Yeah. Um, the promise of it is that it's, it's certainly prognostic. I don't think anyone doubts that in any way or form. Um, I think the, the people who achieve, achieve MRD negativity are destined to probably do well better than those who are not able to, or as a recent study has shown, patients who get to MRD negativity and then lose it, you know, uh, which I'll talk about separately, you know, might do worse. I think the difficulty, there's a lot of confounders with disease biology. The analogy that I've used with, uh, with Manny when we wrote an ASH review about this is that it's kind of like sleep training a kid. Again, going back to the analogy that I'm struggling with right now. Is that go on. I, it, yeah, it, I don't see If your baby's yeah. a sound sleeper and is sleeping through the night by like eight weeks of age, it probably wasn't the books you read or the sleep training you did or like the, the app that you're recording every single wake and sleep time. It's probably just destined to be a good sleeper. Versus my kid sucks at sleeping and it's fine and I'm okay with that. Clearly, I'm very okay with it. But my my point being is that you can do all these interventions and testing and diagnostics and even therapeutics. But there's a lot behind the scenes you just don't know. I'll look at a randomized trial. I see. Oh, I see. So to make your analogy is okay. Okay, this is uh, that's an interesting analogy. Okay, it, but I see where you're getting at. Okay, it, there's a lot behind the scenes, and, and I think and there's some interesting parts, right? So like, I definitely think the data that losing MRD negativity is worse than having MRD positivity low level persistently is the new study. I think by the Miami group that showed that is interesting. But you I know, guess that's like, um, I mean, if, if I mean, it, it's intuitive to me that that would be true because that's a measure of the change in disease volume. That's exactly right. Right. Because you have a clone that's actually doing something yes. versus a clone that's just not doing something. Right. And it's funny because I feel like normally, we, you know, normally I would say it's better to have loved than lost and never to have loved at all. <laughs> and that, is, that does not apply to MRD negativity. I guess, I guess because like um, the way to think about it for people is to say that like, um, MRD is a static measurement of disease at a time, but the predictor of outcome here is the change in disease slope over time. So going from MRD negative to positive means it's growing, and being MRD positive means it's puttering it along. The slope may actually be shallower if you could actually quantify slope of growth. 
which you can with with NGS because you number of styles, number of transcripts. Sure. Agreed. And so I think in my mind, what I want to see is not uh, studies showing that patients who achieve MRD negativity do better because we all know that. I want to see MRD guided workflows, and mm-hmm. we're starting to see those. Those are the RCTs that actually matter the most in the field because then then it's similar, for example, in Hodgkin's like an interim PET, you know, where you actually are making a a imaging guided approach to management. But let's talk about Hodgkin's. So in Hodgkin's, we have data that if the interim PET is negative, mm-hmm. you can omit some drugs and have non-inferior outcomes. That's r- that's Rathel. But and we do have we have people practice that if the interim PET is hot, you're going to crank it up. Which which we don't do at UCSF, but agreed one could do. Agreed. To, you don't do that at UCSF. A cop. I, I I have not seen be a cop used that much here. Even for all. like if it's Doval five on interim two. I think we have other things we can offer. We can try to offer them, put on clinical trial or I something, okay. anything. But I see. Like, a lot of people crank it up. Yeah, um, agreed. But I see. I, that's interesting. I don't know how Bob has practices. But um, I guess, but I'm trying to think. And listener, correct me if I'm wrong. Listeners, look into this. Uh, I don't think there's any randomized trial for like what to do if it goes up. That is true. Okay. I, I, not that I'm aware not of either. Aware oh, right. Of and so, yeah, I'm not saying that Hodgkin's is perfect. Sure, but sure, I just, sure. But, I, but I, at least they're trying. I, I, I like the idea of a workflow, right? Exactly. Where you're actually using this diagnostic tool and testing whether it actually changes outcomes. Gotcha. So you shouldn't check it. You know, well, I, I, I never went to Hopkins for any training, but, you know, I think William Moser has said that, right? Don't order a test that won't change your management. Correct. And, like, I, I, I think MRD, just knowing that, it's, especially that if you check negative and you start checking it every year, you can do that forever, but is it actually going to change anything? One interesting amyloid paper that just got published, for example, showed that even MRD positive patients with amyloid often do quite well. They have organ responses and deep remissions and durable remissions, and not surprised by that at all. And what are they doing for MRD there? A VDJ sequence? Uh, uh, also, right. Also, next generation sequencing as well. Of the, of the re- exactly. Okay. But my point is that MRD, there's so much that it doesn't capture in terms I guess, of what yeah. these cells are actually. Does, does MRD negativity or positivity mean that the cells are going to either do nothing or do Correct. terrible things to you? Nobody knows that yet, and I want to see that. I guess in amyloid, it's such interesting because the pathology is the product of the cell Correct. and not necessarily like the vault number of cells. But I guess the way I would conceptualize it is this you know, like in every single body, in every single person with cancer, with any cancer, uh, you know, there's. Um, there's like a beaker full of it, okay? Some people got a lot of it, and some people got a little of it. Mm-hmm. And some people got none of it, potentially the cured ones, or, or at least they have none of it that's capable of doing anything in their natural life that we'll consider cure. Um, and I guess all of our conventional response measurements from tumor response to to um, hematologic response to bone marrow-based responses like myeloma, the conventional, the older stuff, it's all just a way of trying to capture how much of that beaker is full of cancer or not. Mm-hmm. And MRD is just like, it's still not the bottom of the beaker. You still can't look for drops. You're like like 5 mLs to 7 mLs. Like, that's, where, that's where the current, uh, the limit of detection is. I completely agree. But there's still some cells beyond it. And I guess, so like a lot of this MRD research doesn't surprise me. Like for instance, that, I don't know, people who get a treatment, as you say, um, uh, like the, with your sleep analogy, People who get a treatment and then the treatment works so well that there's very little stuff left, they do better than people who get the same treatment and there's still a lot of stuff left. Mm-hmm. Okay, of course that would be the case. But the question that there are two questions that that come up naturally, the randomization gets at is if you took a bunch of people with MRD positivity but otherwise achieved a CR and you gave them more therapy, mm-hmm. it's not the same as having achieved MRD negativity without that more therapy. Those people have a much favorable biology, like your sleep analogy. Um, if you flip these people from MRD positive to MRD negative, do they also achieve the same benefit? Or are those the kind of people who their disease is ready to pop back up again because it's not, not a really good disease? Um, and those are sort of unknown questions here. Um, and those are the real questions of like that you're getting at. Can you leverage this to 
have better treatment. Completely. And so is MRD negativity the destination? And I would argue that it's not. A cure is my destination. Is MRD negativity a surrogate of that? That's what I want to see answered. Is myeloma curable? (laughs) Uh, You have talked about this. It depends on how you define cure. I I define cure as being able to like walk away from the scans and imaging and and like five years plus. And I would say yes in that regard. I think can you hit average life expectancy? Impossible to tell in myeloma because you know, it'll take five years to figure that out from patients who are diagnosed today and treated today. You have patients that five years out, you stop all follow-up? Oh, that's true. Uh, all follow-up except for clinical visits. Okay. Uh, which, which, but you still check S-PEP and M-proteins. Uh, okay. And like change. Touche. Agreed. But, but no more bone marrow biopsies, no more PETs. Okay. But I've seen some of those patients who have just gotten like regular induction auto and mm-hmm. uh, and two years of land and they stop and they're fine. Great. Agreed. Okay. Agreed. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, it's... They're out there, but we just don't know who those patients are. Yeah. Agreed. And I guess the difficult thing in my mind is, do I really believe we've eradicated the last myeloma cell or did I just have a guy who I've left with such indolent clones that the clones are just going to do something but 20 years from now? You know? And that's exactly what I'm getting at, yeah. right? Because that, that clinical endpoint of it matters to me much more so. That their survival matters to me much more so than the number of cells that may or may not ever cause a problem for them. And I, yeah, and I think they're few. And I guess, I guess the one thing that I'm not convinced is that, like, where, you know, in the beaker of cancer, where we're currently drawing MRD, I think people are think we're down to the drops. But I think we're probably more like a 10 mLs or something. You know what I mean? Agreed. Like, there's a lot more cancer that you don't see. And so if you play around from 10 mLs to 9 mLs, which I think is like where we're talking about, you're not going to substantively increase cure rates. I think people think we're at drops on the bottom of the beaker to dry beaker bottom. And I don't know, I don't know if we're there. Okay. And I think those are the kind of philosophical questions. Okay, this is interesting. Um, any last thought? The last thing we're supposed to talk about is career. You're somebody who's finished fellowship and you're doing a bonus fellowship, which is something that I wrote an article once. <laughs> I, I recall having read that article and being, oh man, Benai is going to be so angry when he sees this. Exactly. See you staying on. Um, suckered into a lower paycheck. It's in my, I think everyone's circumstances, and this is the same thing I think of career advice in general, right? That like, it's an example of a non-RCT approach to things. When, I, when you look at it, when you're applying for fellowships and you're like, well, I'm going to bake my fellowship based on, did those people go on to top programs or academics thereafter? Sure. That, that's like, that's the opposite of an RCT. There's all these confounders <laughs> as to why they stayed, why they should have ever practiced, why whatever that you don't hear about. And in my case, I think COVID delayed my, my ASCO research by, by a very long way, sort of paternity leave. And I thought it was kind of nice to just finish what I started. I think Nina, you know, two weeks ago on her podcast talked about how that's, I think, a very good longitudinal metric of how successful someone will be is, are they a finisher? Yes. And and I would rather take the hit and have a chiller year this year and be a finisher than be, you know, having buried in a clinic panel and not be a finisher, even if it does mean a higher paycheck. Okay, that's good. And I think you said something that's the smartest thing anyone has said on this podcast in a long time, which is um, that, that, these kind of career decisions are inherently based on like very low quality evidence. Uh, extremely low quality yeah. evidence, right. And, and people always tell me like, you know, I don't know, they're always like, oh, Dana-Farber, the best fellowship. Why is it the best fellowship? I always hear that. I was like, why, why is Farber the best fellowship? And they're like, well, you know, like if they have 10 spots, they only have to rank 12 and they get their 10. Okay, I was like, oh, you've told me they're a coveted fellowship, right? Like they, everyone want to go there. That's what you've told me. And then they're like, well, the second reason it's a great fellowship is like the people who go there, like go on to go do great things. And I was like, but you know, to some degree, it's like the, the classic selection bias, right? Yeah. They are, they're the people going to do great things no matter. You could put this person on Pluto 
I they're going to find a way back to this planet. Completely, completely, completely agree. Like an agree. Andy Wire novel, they'll find their way back to this planet and do great things. I mean, it's a talented person. Okay, so you're trying to separate those things. Well, and the other thing to keep in mind is that the whole idea of a lifer. And I, I would definitely, someone, neither you nor I are lifer or constantly nomads on the move. Yeah, but I don't know when I was looking for fellowship and residency, I was looking at, oh, well, I don't want too many lifers. By that I mean, with all due respect to them, patients who are like patients, doctors, yes. who do med school residency fellowship, attending all in the same place. But again, very, very weak evidence because for all I know, there are lifers for personal reasons because they have a house and, the, you know, that the house is not going not, not gonna to sell itself, you know? <laughs> so, and like, they have a reason to do that. Yeah. Who am I to judge? And so I, I think um, so in my what, particular case, go ahead. No, no, I wanted to ask you, I interrupted your thought, but I guess I'm curious. Okay, so you decided to do this year and I think you're making a convincing case that it's a good personalized decision. I don't think anyone's going to fault you for that. But I guess my question is, what is your career ambition? Like, what do you want your job to be five years from now? Mm -hmm. And what do you, what's this, what's this year going to do? And then I guess more to like, you know, I don't know, a lot, a lot of people listen to this who are fellows. So I hear, uh, some of them email me. Um, I don't know. How should a fellow think about it? It's a good question. And I, I think a lot of it depends on what makes them happy. And I think for me, like you're right, my ideal niche so clinically would be kind of myeloma, maybe some lymphoma, um, a lot of CAR-T. I think research-wise, I'm really interested in those hidden gaps in CAR-T therapy, you know, making it more accessible, making it safer, making it more outpatient-friendly, making it more home-friendly, uh, like we're doing an app to like kind of do like home-based ICE and uh, ICANS and, and vital sign monitoring for CRS afterwards, which I think is awesome. That kind of stuff you need the experience, I feel like, in my mind. I need the experience to actually identify what's truly a problem and what's not. Cause I, and I feel like this year, my goal clinically is to just get to that point where I understand CAR-T therapy enough that when I go and start my attending gig, the research that I'm doing is actually what I'm interested in, which is these hidden gaps. And I feel like without it, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable. I, I would feel like an imposter, like saying, oh, this is the gap that our patients experience and this is how I'm going to fix it, where all I've seen is just a handful of patients in clinic and on the hospital for a one-week rotation here and there. If I gave you $20 million, uh -huh. okay, what type of job are you going to take next year? Uh, with no strings attached. No strings. You just cash lump offer. I, and, I, and you don't have to pay tax. <laughs> I still, I'm still very interested in academics. I, I think for me, I know definitely, you know, it's a, uh, I, I wouldn't feel happy seeing patients five days a week. I would love it in some ways. I take that back. I would feel happy, but not fulfilled. I think because I have this idea at the, at the broader kind of intersection of research and supportive care and so forth. So it would be an academic job and I would take that money. I want to use it to actually fund all the gadgets that I can get to make home-based cartoons. You take this possible. 20 million, you put it into your research? I, I, it's a part of it. I pay off my loans. Okay. Buy a house. Okay. Of course. Secure, in this city, kids, you got nothing left. Right, you got nothing. Here. You got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> in San Francisco, between home and daycare, yeah. I, I'm out. But, you're right, you're so out of, you're 30 out. million, maybe I'd use the 10 million, the remaining for all of this. Wow. You're a very interesting person. I, I, I would feel fulfilled. It's, yeah, it's difficult to say. I mean, I have my buddy from medical school, you know, that like one of them is going to be a trauma surgeon. Yeah. I remember being like, oh my God, what the hell is wrong with you? You want to be a trauma surgeon on call every seventh day? Without a real like my life probably not that different. Any transplanter is kind of always on call. Correct. Because you they're always going to be called yeah, about some CRS not, when their stuff. patient's sick in the hospital. Sure. They're still getting called. So our worlds are not that different, but he would not be happy in any other world and nor would I be happy in any other world. I'm just blown away that you're going to invest some of this money into your own research because I'll tell you something funny. Um, you know, I wrote that book Malignant and uh -huh. then um, through some foolishness on my own part, I had sold the audiobook rights to the publisher uh, actually for, for basically like no money at all because they pay so poorly. It's a academic press. Um, but I give them the audio brights when I when I sold mm -hmm. the book to them um and then I decided I was like oh shoot you know I got this microphone and I can like I, I should just record the audiobook myself right and um 
And I think there was like some fly-by-night company that wanted the audiobook rights or whatever. And I was like, you know, don't sell it to them. Just give me the audiobook right. I'll record it and whatever. And then they're like, oh, well, you got to buy the audiobook rights back. And then I was like, oh, shit. I was like, well, how much do you want for these audiobook rights? And they wanted more than what they had paid me for the book. And I was like, I was like, I got literally, so I'm literally losing money, right, if I did this, okay? And so then I was like, mm, oh, I was agonizing about it. And then, like, somebody who works with me, they're like, oh, definitely do it. Definitely buy it. And I'm like, why, why should I definitely buy it? I was like, you know, and then they're like, oh, it's like investing in yourself. Well, don't you want to invest in yourself? And I was like, mm, I don't know if that's a good investment. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if that's a winning investment. So long story short. I did. So I literally went into the red. Like, I lost money. And then I don't know if it's even been recouped or not, but I am kind of, I, I, I don't know if I'm glad I bought it back. I regret that I didn't I withhold the rights when I sold in the first place. Um, but all that said is a longabout way of saying that if you gave me pretty much any sum of money, I don't know if I would invest it in my own research. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's yeah. a really interesting point. Agreed. I, I think it's like what, what your end goal is, what would make you happy. Like I think in your case, like would you be happy if they um, caught and buried the audiobook and never, and the audiobook never saw the light of day versus Correct. it's on you where you are able to do it. Like I feel like... Or if they like got somebody to narrate the audiobook who can't pronounce the things correctly because, you know, these are cancer drugs for the most part. Oh. You know, I was worried about that. And also, I don't know... Mm, I can't say that my audiobook's the best, but I can't say I've listened to a lot of boring audiobooks, like delivered poorly. That is a very, very good point. That would be the worst. Yeah. It, it hear, hearing, a, hearing a book where every second word is pronounced incorrectly, yeah. which is not, through no fault of the narrator at that point, Correct. But that's a good point. Glyvek. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So, but okay. So I guess what I'm trying to push it with my thought experiment is, it sounds to me like if you had unlimited sums of money, you would still be doing some CAR-T clinic. Mm-hmm you would be doing this research on the side. So then you truly have found your like passion place. I, I think so. I think I talked to you in the beginning how I did that QI year and, and a chief residency in quality improvement. And I kind of evolved, but kind of come back a little bit to it. I kind of ran away from QI when I was like, I don't want to be the EMR mm-hmm. boogeyman going into your notes saying you need to document this way. But I come back to it that I think that I think um, we, we are very good at treating diseases and not as good at treating patients. And every oncologist can say that in their own respective way. And for me, I think it's just the, the global processes which we use to deliver healthcare, particular CAR-T therapy and transplant, and then can be improved. And I feel like that's where I would feel happy knowing that I have let patients stay out of the hospital for that much longer. Mm-hmm. And I, that's, that's, a, that's a cause that for me is worth spending money on. Now, it's not as sexy as a phase one trial of the newest ADC or bi-specific or whatever, but for me, like that's what would make me feel like I have succeeded in what I want to do. Wow. What, what if there's a fellow listening and the fellow says, it's so ins- it's, it's, listening to you is an inspiration, but I don't feel the same way. They're like, this is a fellow, and they're like, look, I'm just doing this to get a paycheck. And if I had $20 million, I'd, the fellow was like, you know, I don't know, maybe I would, I would go live on Hawaii. And just like, you know, give it all up. Okay. What if there's somebody like that? But then I well, I want to say people, so I'm not anywhere close to retiring, but I feel like sometimes people don't retire for exactly that reason because they're like, what do I do if I all of a sudden have nothing to do anymore and they would just be miserable? Yes. I, I think living in Hawaii would not be miserable, but not being able to see patients, not be able to do research, I would feel miserable each day. I would spend all my days on Twitter and then everybody would lose. You know? <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> It's so funny you put that way. I guess um, I want to know what your advice is for this fellow, though, who like they're okay, but uh, but I want to come back to it. But I guess I think I think it's very interesting what you're saying, and it's actually similar to like a phone call I had with somebody recently where he pushed this thought experiment where I was um, thinking literally like you know oh, it would be so great if I had like all this money. I uh, like I definitely do things differently at work, and he's like, oh really? What would you do differently? And then we started going through, and he's like, oh, would you still make your little podcast? 
And I was like, yeah. I was like, well, that's, that's not really like work. That's kind of like fun for that's me. That's a good point. Yeah, okay. Agreed. And I was like, yeah. And then they're like, what about your little YouTube videos? And I was like, well, you know, uh, I guess it's a work in progress, but it's kind of a little hobby for me. It keeps me engaged. And then they're like, would you write your, your little op-eds? And I was like, yeah, I, I guess I would do some of that. And then he was like, well, what about like, you know, some of the things you talk about in your podcast is like uh, non-inferiority studies. And I was like, sure. And he's like, well, one of the things that gives you some ability to talk about it is you did a research project where you looked at like all the non-fertile studies. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, so would you still do those research projects? And I was like, well, I guess I probably would because it gives me a lot of like ammunition, helps me answer these questions. And then he was like, and then, well, what about your clinic at the general? Would you cancel your clinic? And I was like, well, I kind of like, I'm kind of grown attached to my clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what about service? And I was like, well, I kind of like service. And by the end of it, I was like, walk myself right back to my job. <laughs> So it sounds like you're the same way. You walking yourself right back to what you do anyway. I, I completely agree. I, I think it's just something that you enjoy doing. And I, I think, again, also selection bias, right? That like you're talking, like we're both in academics Correct. and we're both, I'm sure like someone in pharma would be like, no, like I spend a million dollars and just buy plane tickets and be platinum forever. Yes. Like, whatever. So know? what about, I guess, what about, what if there's a Hemong fellow out there listening and they're like, well, they're, they feel more a kinship to that person who's like, you know, would just retire. Then I guess what, what is the right job for that person? I, whatever they do should not involve inpatient service time. Yeah, right. not inpatient service. Yeah, no, exactly. They should minimize that if, 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 they, if, if they hate that side of being like stuck at your phone or the computer all the time. I think it's hard. Yeah, I, I think it's hard because everyone's trajectory is so individualized. Mm-hmm. I, I think my take on someone who has not found that dream job yet, but I think I've actually envisioned it now, which is step one in that journey, is just make sure you've heard this before that like like a worst day at that dream job would not be that manageable and would would not be would not be terrible and would also be uh, very the, the number of terrible days you have would be minimized and for me you know the the number of terrible days for me would be the days where i'm like stuck like 8 a.m 8 p.m at the hospital but i think those would be minimized because i would have this money or research funding or whatever to support me doing things that i like i see and for me you know like working on a protocol to improve supportive care or getting that protocol implemented that makes outside hospital transfers safer i don't consider it to be work at all like i feel it's so cool to see it happen and that joy that i would get from seeing that happen is worth whatever time i put into it i see well i'm uh, probably somewhat idealistic for sure no I think um, that's but, good. but i i feel like i would not be happy otherwise and i feel like talk to a trauma surgeon they would feel the same way you know okay. they're self-selected but they chose their job for a reason here's my advice to this person then my advice would be for the person who's like just doing it for the paycheck and they really like don't believe in a lot of i don't know um is like when they when they get their first job they should tr- push to get like 60%, 80%. They shouldn't go 100% FTE. Mm-hmm. Cuz like the incremental money is not worth the incremental loss in time. Agreed. And then I think they should be very wary about academic jobs because the academic job will pay them a lot lower and they'll have to do a lot of work that if they really don't have a passion for they won't do. And then full disclosure, I guess, you know, you and I are wired similarly in some ways, which yeah. is like, I don't know. The Tour de France is going on. Mhm. And I have gotten this, like, I've gotten some app on my uh, t- phone and TV that I can watch it, all the episodes. But I, I can't watch it at 4 a.m. because I'm not going to wake up early. So I purposely, like, don't look to see who won. And I watch in the evening. And I don't want to get into too much, but I watch a lot of it because it's like, you know, it's like five hours a day, you know? Okay. I, the only part I've watched is a stupid spectator who, like, clocked out half yeah. the, the, with, with the with stupid sign. sign. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anyways, but th- that's why I watch NASCAR rarely just to see cars crash, which is uh, not... You enough. like the crash. Oh, yeah, God. Exactly. But you like the actual... Oh, like, I love... Uh, yeah. Okay, oh, so. I, I, I'm so addicted to it. And it's like, people think, I, you know, I think if you're not into it, you think it's crazy. Like, you're just watching people, like, pedal by the bicycle, but the commenters. Okay, anyway, I really like it. And uh, yet... I really like it. And I like always look forward to this time of year to watch it. And still I find myself, you know, 
watching it. And then as I'm watching it, I'm like, you know, check my email. I uh, see that somebody has sent me some figure from some paper we're working on. I look at the figure. I say, oh, that's interesting, you know. And then I was like, hmm. Then I email them back and I say, hey, why don't you move the bar over here or put this line in? And they email back. And then they like send the draft of the thing, and I, like I start reading it, and I start, well, I make a little edit and a little edit and a little edit, and like I guess the point I want to make is like, you said it doesn't feel like work, and it like doesn't feel like work. It's like literally like I don't have to do it right now, but it's kind of drawing me in because I'm genuinely intrigued, and I'm so intrigued, it's intriguing me more than this show I really like to watch. And so I kind of do both. Out of the corner, I'm watching the tour, and I'm doing this, and then I look up when there's that crash for that stupid sign. Agreed. So I, I think it comes down to both. It's just like, don't be bored. Whatever you choose in life, like don't be bored and like choose yeah. things that don't bore you. Committees are always boring, so you can't avoid boring stuff forever, but try to minimize the boring factor. Well, I avoid those. Uh, Raul Banerjee, thank you so much for doing this. It was a great discussion. Perfect. Thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.